This is Ezekiel chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. Ezekiel acts out the people of Jerusalem going into captivity. So I'll pray and we'll get stuck into it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Lord, that our hearts would be soft and humble and that we would receive the truth with soft hearts, receptive hearts, so we can understand it and bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with the memory verse, as we always do. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. So we speak this out loud. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So I thought today it would be good just to go back a little bit and just explain the big picture, what's going on, like the historical context. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, came to Jerusalem for the first time. He just defeated the Egyptian army and the Assyrians. And basically, he was the king of the world. He had defeated the previous world power, and now the Babylonian Empire was taking over everything. So he came there in 605 BC, and he took the king and the, the royal family and the best of the people. So you know, your best tradesmen, your best minds, basically. It's very economically clever. You know, you take the good people back to your place and they can do the good jobs for you and your kingdom can prosper. Now, the leaders of Jerusalem, initially they submitted, but then they rebelled. So Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem a second time in 597 BC and took 10,000 Jews. And this time it included Ezekiel back to Babylon. He hoped this would teach Jerusalem to submit to him, but as we've been reading, there were false prophets, many false prophets, who believed that God would deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar, and many of the people, including the leaders in Jerusalem, believed them. And so they rebelled again, and Nebuchadnezzar came down a third time, not in a very good mood, in 586 BC. And they didn't repent, they didn't submit to Nebuchadnezzar like God kept telling them to through the true prophets. And... He destroyed the city and temple completely. Everything was wiped out. And so Ezekiel was called to be a prophet about five or six years before this last invasion in 586 BC, which means he would have been called about 591. So he started prophesying about the coming invasion about six years before it happened, five or six years before it happened. So all the prophecies we're reading are concerning his third invasion. Now, last week we covered a really important principle and that is God is with us wherever we are. God told Ezekiel that God's people would be scattered in various countries but he also gave them a promise that he would be a little sanctuary for them to protect and keep them wherever they were, like literally a little holy place, the Bible says. Why was that so special? Well, God's presence had gone from the temple and the temple would soon be destroyed. 
Now, I've got a quote from John Coulson. The Jews are the only ethnic group in world history who have survived over three generations from the homeland. So the only group who survived more than 300 years apart from the homeland. For over 2,000 years, they kept their identity, their culture, their system of belief because God indeed was a sanctuary to them. So it's proof that God really was with them to keep them and protect them, just like he promised. So as we go through the word, you'll find that God keeps his promises. He's a faithful God. We can trust him. This week, God tells Ezekiel to pack his belongings and prepare to move. But he's not going out the front door. He's going to dig a hole in the wall of his house. And he's going to leave a twilight through a hole in the wall with his face covered. What he's doing is enacting what Zedekiah is going to do when he tries to escape when Nebuchadnezzar breaks through into the city. So we'll go through this. Let's read verses 1 to 16 in Ezekiel chapter 12. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious people, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear, but does not hear. For they are a rebellious house, literally a house of rebellion, a house characterized by rebellion. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. Remember, he's in Babylon doing this. It may be that they will consider though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight, as though going into captivity. And at evening you shall go in their sight, like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight, and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders, and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face, so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day, as though going into captivity, and at evening I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight, and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. And in the morning the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem, that's King Zedekiah, the guy that Nebuchadnezzar put in as like a puppet king, and all the house of Israel who are among them, so all the people currently in Judah who would take refuge in Jerusalem during the siege, say, I am assigned to you, as I have done, so it shall be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity that the people in Jerusalem will be taken away into captivity. And the prince who was among them, Zedekiah, shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face, so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. 
Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. But I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. That speaks of restored relationship. So let's take the first two verses, and this is where Israel is described as a house of rebellion. And as I said before, it's literally a house that is characterized by rebellion. Like Judas was described as a son of perdition, a son of destruction. So Ezekiel 12, 1 and 2, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see, but does not see, and ears to hear, but does not hear for they are a rebellious house. So, the very first phrase there, now the word of the Lord came to me, this is a new section of prophecy. So what we did last week, we finished off chapters 8 through 11. That was one prophecy that Ezekiel received. And that was a year after the first lot, which was chapters 1 through 7. So this is a new lot, a new section of the book. And it consists mainly of a series of announcements of judgment coming against the kingdom of Judah. And it says, You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. So he was among them. You dwell in the midst. He was among these people. So the people who carried into exile, they were rebellious still. It didn't mean they'd repented. This work was an ongoing work. It's going to take 70 years for them to soften and then eventually come back to Israel. And they would be changed by then, but this work is a work in progress. So at the moment, the people who are in exile and the people who are in Jerusalem are still in rebellion against God, the majority of them. And Jerusalem is facing imminent judgment. So I've got an application here. It's pretty simple, but it's very important. Ezekiel was in the midst of a very, very difficult and evil society. He was in Babylon, which is the world of idols, and you could say it was a bit like, you know, Sydney or San Francisco or something like that. You know, he had everything going on there. The idols weren't just things that they used to pray to, there's things they used to do things with, okay? Not the idol, but, you know, the girls and the sacrifices and all those things. So we are not to be like the world, that is to be conformed by the world into its mold, and you can see Romans 12, 1 and 2. And we're also not to be isolated from the world. And that's another mistake that people make, like you know, the monks living in a monastery. But rather we're to be separate from the world so that we can be salt and light in the world. And Matthew 5, 13 and 14. So how do we do this? Well, Jesus prayed for us in John 17, and he tells us it's really important. And now I am coming to you. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. I say these things while I am still in the world, so that my joy may be made full and complete in them, that they may experience my delight fulfilled in them, that my enjoyment may be perfected in their own souls, that they may have my gladness within them, filling their hearts. I have given and delivered to them your word, or message, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world do not belong to the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you 
will take them out of the world, but that you will keep and protect them from the evil one. So, the reason I picked this scripture, I have given and delivered to them your word, your message. What has God done with Ezekiel? Given him the message, and the world hated him. His people didn't like him. Remember, they confined him to his house and bound him with ropes. He didn't have a very nice life. So, continuing in verse 16, They are not of the world, worldly belonging to the world. Jesus is talking about his disciples, but we can apply this to Ezekiel and to ourselves. They are not of the world, worldly belonging to the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, verse 17, Sanctify them, purify, consecrate, separate them for yourself, make them holy by the truth. So that's what sanctify means, purify, consecrate. Separate them for yourself, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So Ezekiel was sent. Well, guess what? We're all sent too. We're sent as ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 21. We are ambassadors for Christ, pleading with them, crying out, be reconciled to God. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become his righteousness. So, how are we made holy? How are we separated from the world in the sense that we don't act or think like the world? And we are also protected from the evil one? Well, by knowing and understanding the truth. It's the word of God. It's so simple. The more we are in the word of God, the less we will be in the world. Meaning the less I will think, talk and act like the world. So I want my behavior and my thinking and my speech to be influenced by the Word of God and not by the world. And so what I choose to focus on, what I choose to put into me, is going to determine what comes out of me. So it's the world or the Word. The world or the Word. Will I waste an hour in front of the TV? or invest in our reading from the Word of God. There's no neutral ground. I'm going to be influenced in everything I do, either for good or for evil, to become more like Christ or more like the world. So I consider Ezekiel to be very much like one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, especially post-cross. Before the cross, they were a little bit immature some of the things they were doing and the slowness of heart to believe. But after, they really did prepare their hearts to follow him and obey him. And Ezekiel was like that. He prepared his heart to seek God by choosing to spend time with God, prayerfully reading scripture and praying according to the scripture and obeying what God showed him to do. It's that easy. But it's that difficult. (laughs) How's that? He received God's message. What's our message? 1 Corinthians 5, 20, 21. Be reconciled to God. Our message is very similar to Ezekiel's message. Look, you've sinned. You need to come back to God. So, he received God's message, Ezekiel did, and the people hated him because of it. However, because he was faithful to keep himself in the love of God, meaning he prioritized his relationship with God above all else, he made it the most important thing, God protected Ezekiel, and he also experienced delight and fullness of joy as he abided in God. Now, what does abide mean? 
or Amos 3.3. How can two walk together unless they agree? Well, abiding means to walk in agreement with. So it follows obedience. So what are the consequences of this choice, the word or the world? Well, misery, if I choose to find pleasure in the world and allow myself to be influenced by the world, but perfect joy, gladness, and delight will be mine if I choose to find pleasure in Christ. Is it right to find pleasure, to seek pleasure? Well, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God wants to make our life good, yeah? He wants to make our life full. He wants to give us abundant life. But the pleasure we have in Christ is different to the pleasure in the world. Pleasure in the world is sensual, it's, you know, it's temporary. Christ's delight, gladness, joy, whatever you want to call it in the Amplified Bible here, it's everlasting, it's eternal, and it just builds and builds and builds. And what does it say in the Amplified Bible, which I read before? So that my joy may be made full and complete and perfect in them that they may experience my delight fulfilled in them, that my enjoyment may be perfected in their own souls, that they may have my gladness within them, filling their hearts. It's John 17, 13. So Ezekiel was someone who chose to spend time in the Word of God, and as a result, he was someone that God could use. Ezekiel prepared his heart to seek the Lord, and as a result, he became a vessel of honor. So I have to make a choice, you have to make a choice. Do I want to be used by God? We're studying Ezekiel, he's living a life, and he's a great example of someone who's being used by God in an amazing way, through all kinds of difficult circumstances, but he's faithful. How's he doing it? Spending time in the Word, preparing his heart, yeah? And he's become a vessel of honor. So, do I love God enough that I'm willing to give up what I want so I can do what God wants? So, Second Timothy Chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the Master to use you for every good work. Would you say that applies to the life of Ezekiel? Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call. On the Lord with pure hearts. So there's a challenge for us this morning. Continuing in verse 2 in Ezekiel chapter 12, it says, Which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house, a house of rebellion. So this is a huge tragedy if you look at it from a spiritual point of view. Israel was given so much, so many blessings you know the romans 9 4 to whom pertain the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the service of god and the promises they had all that and it just went to waste they could have seen and heard it was all there for the receiving and for the enjoying but they chose not to and the same can be true for us so i want to focus on this really important concept that's all throughout the scriptures Jesus said it lots and lots. For example, Luke chapter 8, verse 8, He who has ears, 
to hear, let him hear. As I said, it's one of Jesus' favorite sayings. I want to dig into what it means. What does it mean? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I believe it's talking about the condition of our hearts. And I want to go through the parable of a sower, because I think this explains to us how we can have a heart that will receive and we can grow in our faith. So I'm going to read the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verses 3 to 23. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what have we learnt so far? Well, it's only the soft, repentant heart that is able to hear and understand. Verse 10 continues, and another reason I'm reading this is because it explains later on in this chapter when it says that the hearts have become dull, and so Jesus explains it here. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. So it's got to do with the understanding, right? And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Notice that. It's their choice. Okay? Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and do not hear it. Talking about the first coming of the Messiah. Much predicted in the Old Testament. Verse 18, Therefore hear the parable of a sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So, as you know, the seed is the word of God, and the four different types of ground represent the four conditions, potential conditions of our heart. 
So there's a soft heart, receives, obeys, hungers after the word of God. That's a good soil. The hard heart that rejects the truth because they can't understand it, and that's the path, the seed that falls on the path. There's the uncommitted heart. This is my understanding of it, my way of explaining it. An uncommitted heart that gives up when the going gets hard on the rocky ground. And the compromising heart that refuses to separate itself from the world, choked by the weeds. So I see the hard-hearted person as just not interested, not wanting to know, no understanding. Then Satan takes that truth and it's gone. The uncommitted heart, the rocky ground, you know, there might be an altar call somewhere, just just one example, and, you know, there's the music and there's the motivational speaker maybe and there's a call and, and they jump up because their friends are going up and yeah, 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 I believe. And then what happens next week? Oh, are you going to come to church? No, I'm going to the pub. But I thought you'd become a Christian last week. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to church this week. Maybe next week, you know? So sprang up and wasn't really a genuine conversion. And then the compromising heart, well, they never really counted the cost. They weren't willing to give up the things of the world. So we need to have that soft heart. We need to be willing to give up the things of the world and be genuine in our commitment to God. So we can apply these four conditions of the heart to both believers and non-believers for the unbelieving situation, circumstance. The only one who's going to be saved is a person with a soft heart because it's the only one that Jesus said would understand and bear fruit. Now for believers, it's a bit different. Applying this to believers, we can be any one of these soils at any time. Have you been in a time in your life where your heart's been hard as a Christian? or you've been caught in the things of the world, or you've had an opportunity to do something for God, but it was difficult and you didn't do it. It's all those things, right? So, how do we get our heart to be soft? We need to be preparing our hearts to seek the Lord. And I've got a couple of references there for you. First Samuel 7, 3 is the first one. And these are examples, both positive and negative, of people either preparing their hearts to seek the Lord or not preparing their hearts to seek the Lord. So I want you to remember that the condition of my heart is up to me. It doesn't matter how smart I am, whether or not I like reading, how much I can remember, how I feel when I'm reading the Word, or how much I think I understand or don't understand. It's all about having an attitude of submission to God. Will I allow God to speak truth to me and guide me? Or do I think, like the Israelites did, that I know best and therefore don't need God's wisdom and therefore choose to sin by neglecting his word? It's a sin of neglect. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things we do that are wrong and the sins of omission are things we don't do that we should be doing and therefore it's a sin. Just going back to Matthew thirteen fifteen, consider what Jesus said. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their eyes are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. So 
it says have grown dull. What does that tell you? Well, the hardening of their hearts happened over a period of time. It was their choice and their eyes they have closed. So this is what happens when I neglect my relationship with God. This is a sin of neglecting my relationship with God. Why is it a sin? What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength, right? So if I'm loving something else more than God, if I'm neglecting God, then I'm breaking the first commandment. And what happens? The time and affections I once had given to God, had prioritized and said, God, this is yours. I've given them, I've reassigned them to other sinful activities. It doesn't mean they're bad, but they're not God's best for me. Okay, Other activities, other things, other interests. And as I do this, my heart grows harder and harder. And it's a very subtle, it's a very gradual thing that happens. And it's happened to me before, so I know by experience. <laughs> a little less of God's word here, a little more of the world over there. And before I know it, my once soft heart has become hard towards God. And the Casting Crowns lyric is very good. It's a slow fade when you give your life away. It doesn't happen all at once. Families don't crumble in a day. Daddies don't crumble in a day. It takes time. It's because of neglect of our relationship with God. Hebrews 3, 13-15 you must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So what are we learning about? Israel hardening their hearts, right? And the consequence, well, God had to discipline them, right? So it's not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about suffering the divine discipline of God. God had a lot of blessings for them to receive. They didn't receive them. They're still his people. They didn't share in all that belongs to Christ. So how do I prevent this from happening to me? How do I prevent ending up like the Israelites? Well, I need to guard my heart. I need to deliberately and purposefully choose those things which are pure, lovely, honorable, and true. Philippians 4.8. Things which will help me grow in my relationship with God. Now, where are you going to find that most of the time? In the Word, yeah? At the same time, I need to deliberately and purposefully choose to avoid the things which will hinder my walk with God. If I'm not deliberate and intentional in my quest to keep myself in the love of God, it says that in Jude 21, it's a command, keep yourself in the love of God. If I'm not deliberate and intentional to continue to choose to draw near to God so that God will draw near to me, it's a promise, James 5.8, then I will slowly but surely drift away from God. And Proverbs 4.23 from the Amplified, it says, Keep and guard your heart with all vigilance." And above all that you guard, for out of it flow the springs of life. So keep and guard your heart with all diligence. So applying this to marriage, just to make it more practical so you can understand, right? Just imagine if I didn't purposefully and intentionally seek to improve my marriage. I just kind of let it drift. If I felt like helping my wife or talking to my wife, I would. But if I didn't, then I wouldn't. 
it'd be all right. What would happen to my marriage? It is slowly just we get more and more distant, right? Because why? Marriage takes work. Relationships take work. Yeah. My marriage would die a slow death. It wouldn't happen in one day. And the same is true concerning our relationship with God. We must treat our relationship with God like a marriage and invest time and energy into it, whether we feel like it or not, because we must. Because if we don't, our hearts will become hard. And the only remedy for a hard heart is for God to break it, <laughs> which hurts. We want to avoid that, yeah? So, I've said that we must treat it like a marriage. Well, actually, it is a marriage. We are the bride of Christ, yeah? We're waiting for the wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So just remember, we're looking forward to that. And for those who are married, before you get married, you put a lot of time and effort into cultivating that relationship. So we're going to meet Christ. We want to be cultivating our relationship with Christ. So when we meet him, we won't be ashamed. But we'll be, yes, I'm really looking forward to this. And just a quick story. The last two weeks before Marissa and I got married, it was amazing. We were practicing physical separation and that purity. And, you know, I wouldn't be over her place at night and stuff like that. And we were just looking forward so much to that wedding day when we could finally be together. And Marissa actually wrote a song. It was called No More Goodbyes. And, you know, we'd actually be like almost crying. Sometimes you would as we separate at the end of the day because I had to go home. I couldn't stay over. And we're just really looking forward to that time where we wouldn't have to separate. And that's what it should be like with our hearts with God. As we grow closer to Him, we're so looking forward to being in His physical presence and never being physically separate from Him again. And also getting rid of this sin nature, which also doesn't help our cause to draw near to Him. So let's move on to verses 3 to 7 in Ezekiel chapter 12. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight as though going into captivity, and at evening you shall go in their sight. So this is like with heaven watching, yeah? In public, like those who go into captivity, dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So God is speaking a message through Ezekiel's actions. He's to do all these things in their sight so they can see. Verse 7, so I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day as they're going into captivity, and at evening I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight and bore them on my shoulder in their sight. So this is a weird thing to ask someone to do. He's already in captivity, and the people around him are already in captivity, and here he is acting out going into captivity again. Why? Well, it's a message against the false prophets. It's a message to let the people know that those who are still in Jerusalem would go into captivity. So I've got a couple of quotes 
to emphasize this. It is important to remember that there were many false prophets in Judah, Jerusalem, and likely among the exiles in Babylon who promised that God would rescue his people from the Babylonians. These false prophets spoke smooth words of certain deliverance. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel strongly warned them that this deliverance would not come and that God had appointed them to be conquered. That's from David Guzik. Another one from Wright. Rival prophets were foretelling a speedy return to a flourishing Jerusalem. And it's got some references there where you can see those false promises from the false prophets. Now, your belongings, what they would do is grab a piece of cloth or a sack and put whatever you could find that was going to help you survive the long walk. (laughs) You know, it might take a month to walk from Israel to Babylon. And you had to take whatever you needed. And so they had a skin or a durable cloth and loaded with whatever you needed to survive to get to Babylon. In verse 5 it says, Dig through the wall in their sight. And this is picturing the desperation that the people in Jerusalem would have to escape the siege, the hunger. Remember, they were killing their babies and eating them and it was pretty disgusting. There was no food, it was terrible. But there's also a specific reference to Zedekiah who would sneak out of the city by night and try to escape, and we'll read more about that later in verse 12. And it says, cover your face in verse 6 so that you cannot see the ground. This speaks of the shame that they would experience as they left the city behind. So you know how you want to cover your face and hide when you're shamed. So I did as I commanded. As we spoke about before, Ezekiel was obedient, and that's why God could continue to use him. And verse 7, as though going into captivity, the people Ezekiel was communicating to already knew what it was like to be taken into captivity, and this would have made them understand that those left in Jerusalem would shortly be joining those who had already been exiled to Babylon. So let's move on to verses 8 to 14. And in the morning the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns a prince in Jerusalem, Zedekiah, and all the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am a sign to you, as I have done, so it shall be done to them. That's what it means to be a sign. I'm acting out what is going to happen in Jerusalem. As I have done, so it shall be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity, and the prince Zedekiah, who is among them, shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. This is literal. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. So, verse 9, the people are saying, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, God's strategy has worked. He's got their interest. He's got their attention. And really they knew what Ezekiel was doing. He was acting out, play acting, going to captivity trying to escape. But now they wanted to know what it meant. Why are you doing it? Is really the question there. 
Verse 10, this burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are among them. So all those who are still in Judah and Jerusalem, including Zedekiah the prince, the, the puppet king put there by Nebuchadnezzar, would go into captivity. Now, why does Ezekiel call Zedekiah the prince? A bit of um, trivia here. Well, a quote by Feinberg, the subject of the message was King Zedekiah, who was always spoken of by Ezekiel as prince, never king. Jehoiachin, he was the one who was taken in the second captivity exile, was regarded as a true king, and you'll see that in Ezekiel 17.13. In Russian tablets found by archaeologists in Babylon, Jehoiachin was still referred to as a king of Judah. So I put that quote in because here we have an example of archaeological evidence for the siege and the taking people to Babylon. Verse 12, The prince who was among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder. So this prince, Zedekiah, will be brought low. He will be humbled and have to try and escape like any other person. So again, your power, your money will not save you. Your sin will find you out. He shall cover his face again, embarrassment, shame. Plus, he was probably trying to disguise himself. And so he's trying to escape. He didn't want to draw attention to himself because it was at that night when after the Babylonians broke through, all the men of war, they tried to get out and escape. Now, I will also spread my net over him. So King Zedekiah of Judah tried to escape, but he was caught, captured, and taken captive to Babylon. And reference there is Jeremiah 39, 2-4 and 2 Kings 25-4. And as predicted, his soldiers would be powerless to help him. Why? Well, God promised to scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops. And so it happened. Zedekiah would have been saying, I've got a plan, I'm going to get my troops, we're going to break through the Babylonians, we're going to get to a different country, get refuge there. No. It didn't happen. God said it wouldn't, and it didn't. So, a quote, The destruction of the king was like the dropping of a net over a snarling wild beast that the hunter then drags away to an inevitable slaughter. So that's what it means. I also spread my net over him. That's the idea behind that. Verse 13. Now this has uh, caused some people to say, oh, there's a contradiction. How can you go to some place and not see it? We'll find out. I've got some references there. It's fulfilled in 2 Kings 25.7, Jeremiah 39.67 and 52.11. So the Babylonians were not as cruel as the Assyrians. The Assyrians literally put a big fish hook in your jaw and link you to the next person in front and you'd walk one after the other with a fish hook through your jaw. They were really cruel. Babylonians, they were still pretty cruel. What they did was they killed Zedekiah's sons before him at Riblah and then they blinded him. So the last thing Zedekiah saw was the murder of his sons. So a quick application here. Our choices to follow or not follow God affect those we love. So, just like Samson, Zedekiah's spiritual blindness led to his physical blindness. And you can see Judges 16, 18, 21. 
There's like a picture there if you're spiritually blind. In Zedekiah's case, it led to his physical blindness. And just like Lot, and here's the main application, Zedekiah's bad decisions severely affected his family. His sons were murdered by Nebuchadnezzar because they rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. So if Zedekiah had obeyed God and surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, if they'd listened to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, then they wouldn't have been killed. And if you read in Kings and that, and in Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah is called to Zedekiah, and Zedekiah says, what do I do? And Jeremiah says, very simple, I've told you plenty of times, this is my words, submit, go out. And the king Zedekiah says, well, we can't do that. What do other princes think of me? So, anyway, he wouldn't humble himself, he wouldn't go out, he wouldn't surrender. And as a result, because of his rebellion against God, his family died. Now, I want to talk about prophecy for a bit and show you several prophecies were fulfilled here. So prophecy in the Bible is both specific and accurate. It's always 100% accurate, and unlike Nostradamus prophecies and whatever, which can be taken almost any way, the biblical prophecy is very specific. So God tells Ezekiel that Zedekiah would go to Babylon as a captive and die there, but also that he would never see it. So we're going to read Jeremiah 39, 4-8 to see what happened. So it was, when Zedekiah the king of Judah and all the men of war saw them, that's the Babylonians inside Jerusalem, they'd broken through, that they fled and went out of the city by night. Interesting, isn't that what Ezekiel prophesied like six years before? By way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls. Now they would have been sealed up most likely, and they would have had to dig through, yeah? And he went out by way of the plain, but the Chaldean or the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah, and that's a town on the border between Syria and Israel. So literally, as we read previously, he would be killed on the border of Israel. It happened. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. When we read last week, that would happen. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Remember what Ezekiel 12, 13 said? Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Very specific. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So, four prophecies fulfilled that we've looked at. Just from these verses in Jeremiah. Ezekiel 12, 13 and 17, 20. Zedekiah never did see Babylon, but he did die there. And as I might have mentioned before, this is used as evidence of a contradiction by people who don't like the Bible and want to disprove the Bible. But if they just read the whole story, they'd find that this actually confirms that God does know everything before it happens, and he's told us in advance. Ezekiel 11, 1-13, it says, All the nobles or princes of Judah were killed by Nebuchadnezzar at the border of Israel. And basically, God said that you're not going to die in the siege, I'm going to take you out of Jerusalem, this cauldron. I'm going to take you to the border and you will die there. And guess what? It happened. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That's what God said. 
And the third one, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2, and Jeremiah 21, and so forth. The Babylonians burned Jerusalem. So three times God said the Babylonians are going to come and burn Jerusalem, and they did. Ezekiel 12, 12-14, Zedekiah would try to escape through a hole in the wall, but would be captured. And his soldiers would be also scattered from him. And 2 Kings 25, 4 gives a bit more information and says that his soldiers were scattered from him. So everything that the prophet said would happen six years before, it happened exactly as he said. And a quote from Clark, All the prophecies from this to the 20th chapter are supposed to have been delivered in the sixth year of Zedekiah, five years before the taking of Jerusalem. How accurate the prediction and how exactly fulfilled. Now we come to verses 15 and 16, and I'll call this, Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The purpose of God's judgment is to reveal himself to his people and the nations. So I'll read verses 15 and 16. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. But I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine and from pestilence. This is the people in Jerusalem who are under siege that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay. So twice in these two verses, it repeats this phrase, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I'll read a quote from David Guzik here. Ezekiel often used this phrase to explain why God allowed such great and devastating judgment to come against his people. In the end, it is to reveal himself to them even if it were in his judgments. Another quote, this time by John Corson, God's people would be scattered in order that the heathen might know that he is the Lord. In other words, the heathen, the nations around, would see that when God's people get out of line, he corrects them. Peter tells us that judgment always begins at the house of the Lord. 1 Peter 4.17 Therefore, before he corrects his country, it shouldn't surprise us when the Lord corrects us, his own people. God judged Israel before he judged Babylon. He judged his own people first. Verse 16 says, I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Now, Right back in Ezekiel chapter 6, it explained how this went. These verses are really important. They show us God's end game, God's big picture, what he's ultimately trying to achieve. And in Ezekiel 6, 8, it says, And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. So I'll say that again. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I will bring this calamity upon them. Remember that everything that God allows in our lives has a good purpose. It's not in vain. So submit to God's discipline. Submit to the circumstances. Confess and forsake your sin and you will find yourself back in relationship with God. Which is what God means when he keeps on repeating. And they shall know that I am the Lord. So it's not just for the heathen, the unbelievers to see, yep, God's real. He said he'd judge his people, and he has. But you shall know that I am the Lord means that you come back into relationship with God. I love this. When we go through times of correction, 
I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. He's always doing it for our good. So, Ezekiel 6, 8-10, it shows us what true repentance is. This is a bit of revision from a month or two ago. It's the kind of repentance that God was seeking from his people Israel. The same kind of repentance that he wants from us. Where we come to hate or loathe ourselves because of our sin. And we will be genuinely sorry that we broke the heart of our loving God and Father. Now, there can be a fake revival in our own life where we have a change. But it's not because we love God. It's for other reasons. Now, in the history of Israel, there were fake revivals under the rule of Josiah and Hezekiah, both godly kings, there was a fake revival. It tells you that the people's hearts weren't in it. But these verses in Ezekiel 6, 8-10 show us what genuine love looks like, what a real revival looks like, when we love God enough to actually be concerned about how our sin affects God. So I'm just going to read those verses from Ezekiel 6, 8-10. Yet I will leave a remnant, so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations what we just read in chapter 12 when you are scattered through the countries then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols they will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations and they shall know that I am the Lord I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity on them. So, general repentance is when we grow to hate the sin. It's not, well, I'm going to stop taking drugs so I can work at the mine, or, you know, that kind of change is superficial. A genuine repentance, a genuine change is when we do it because we love God and we don't want to hurt Him by continuing the sin. That's got to be the, the motive. And that's, what I'm going to finish with today and before we head into communion. It's one thing to know what to do, but what if we're not motivated to obey? You know, I've been going through today what to do, what to do, what to do, but why should we do it? Why should we take the time to guard our hearts, put all the effort into guarding our hearts? Why should I be proactive in growing my love for God and being willing to genuinely repent, to turn from sin, to give up? those things to genuinely say no I choose not to do those things anymore because I don't want to well it's for God's sake not our own it's not going to just happen all by itself so I look at it this way as believers in this world it's like we're fish swimming upstream if we stop swimming what's going to happen you're going to get pushed downstream right so there's no neutral ground my love for God is either growing or dying my heart is getting softer or harder. It's my choice. So making the choice to do nothing or to do just what feels good at the time, what you feel like doing, is in reality me making the choice to backslide to harden my heart if I do that. So I just want to bring us back to the most important thing in the Scriptures. It's our motivation. What is going to motivate me to sacrifice all for the sake of my relationship with God? Well, there can only be one motive, right? And that is love. Second Corinthians 
For the love of Christ controls and urges and impels us. This is from the Amplified Version. Because we are of the opinion and conviction that since one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that all those who live might live no longer to and for themselves, but to and for him who died and was raised again for their sake. So, what does the love of Christ urge us to do? He died for all, so that all those who live might live no longer to and for themselves, but to and for him who died and was raised again for their sake. So the only way we're going to be victorious in our overcoming sin and all those things and obedience is a greater understanding of the love of God, what he's done for us. Now, why should this motivate us? Why should God's love motivate us? Let's have a look. 1 John 4, 17-19 In this union and communion with him, again this is from the Amplified Version, Love is brought to completion and attains perfection with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment with assurance and boldness to face him. Because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, dread does not exist, but full-grown, complete, perfect love turns fear out of doors and expels every trace of terror. For fear brings with it the thought of punishment, And so he who is afraid has not reached the full maturity of love. He's not yet grown into love's complete perfection. We love him because he first loved us. So, what has God done for us? What's the most important thing? What do we got to keep coming back to? Penal substitution, right? Jesus died so that I didn't have to. He gave his life for me so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So when we face God, there's no fear. Because if we don't have God's forgiveness, we know that we're going to stand before the great white throne and we're going to be sentenced to eternity in hell. But God in his grace sent his son to die for us so that we can be forgiven. He paid the price. So notice also the last verse, verse 19 there, it says, We love him because he first loved us. And why do we love him? Because he gave his life as a payment for the sins of the whole world. And I just want to focus on now that concept. Romans 5, 6-10 from the Amplified Version again. Why were we yet in weakness, powerless to help ourselves? That's what that means, in weakness. Powerless to help ourselves. At the fitting time, Christ died for, on behalf of, the ungodly in place of now it is an extraordinary thing for one to give his life even for an upright man though perhaps for a noble and lovable and generous benefactor some might even dare to die but God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners Christ the Messiah the anointed one died for us therefore since we are now justified acquitted made righteous and brought into right relationship with God by Christ's blood How much more certain is it that we shall be saved by him from the indignation and wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, it is much more certain, now that we are reconciled, that we shall be saved 
daily delivered from sin's dominion through his resurrection life. Powerful verses, eh? So, a couple of questions to finish up before we take communion together. And I want you to think about these questions. Why should I repent? And my answer would be, because if I love God, then I will be concerned about how my sin affects him. Any other reason or motive is selfish and self-centered. And the second question is, why should I obey God? Well, because if I love God, then I would genuinely desire to please him and honor him by the way I live, meaning everything I do, say, and think. And a good example there is a child loving his or her parents, and if they love their parents, they want to honor their parents and do what is right for their parents and please their parents. And you see that especially in little kids, you know. They really want to please their parents, and when mum and dad is happy with them, they're just really overjoyed, yeah? That's what it's like here. If I love God, if I'm his kid, my desire to please him will be proportional to how much I love him. I will want to honor him. I want to make him proud. So as you're taking communion, ask yourself the question, why am I repenting or why do I want to repent? What's my motive for repenting? Is it a selfish motive or a godly motive, an unselfish motive? And why do I want to obey God? Is it because I genuinely desire to please Him and honor Him? Or is it because I'm looking for some kind of blessing or some other selfish reason? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that atones or pays for our sin. And as Jesus says, when he took bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. So let's eat together. Then he took the cup and said, this is my blood given for you. This is the blood or the sign of the new covenant. So let's drink together. Father, thank you for your gift of your Son, Jesus. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you that your blood cleanses us from our sin. It makes us white as snow. And we can be acquitted, justified, made right in your sight. And so when we stand before you, there will be no fear. And Lord, we want to be so thankful that, Lord, we're deserving of death. There's no other way of looking at it. We are guilty sinners. But you have not punished us as our sins deserve. Instead, you took the punishment. And that should make us eternally grateful. And that should be a motive for serving you, for obeying you, for wanting to repent. Lord, help us to really search our hearts and consider what our true motives are. We just commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.